Welcome to Indie Insider, presented by Blackshell Media. This is the weekly show where we talk with video game developers and professionals about their stories, their advice for others, and their thoughts on the indie video game industry. I'm Logan Schultz, and on today's show I sit down and talk with John Master Lee, a veteran product and brand executive in the games industry. He's worked with companies such as The Meat Group, Loot Crate, Konami, THQ, and Bethesda, as well as founding a number of startups, and we talk about it all. He also shares with me his thoughts on how successes come to those who pursue their passions, how to make your geographical location work in your favor, the pros and cons of releasing your game early, and how the lean startup methodology can apply to your work. As always, if you have thoughts, questions, or ideas on what we should do next, shoot me an email at logan at blackshellmedia.com. You can also find the most up-to-date news on the Indie Insider podcast on Twitter by following at Logan A. Schultz. And now, John Master Lee. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Indie Insider Podcast. Today, I am extremely pleased to be talking with John Master Lee. John, how's it going? Good. How's it going, Logan? I'm doing all right. Uh, I'm very excited to talk to you. You have had, um, and and I'm sure you've heard this many times, but you have a very impressive career in the games industry. You know, uh, I think impressive can only be uh, applied after you take a look back and realize, like, yeah, I guess <laughs> this rambling career throughout the game industry actually uh, didn't end up uh, off track. <laughs> well, you and I, we're going to take a bit of a trip back. I want to hear, you know, about you and, and your experience in the video game industry and your career. And, uh, you know, from that, I'm sure we will pull many anecdotes and uh, and some advice for those listeners in the audience. Um, if you're willing to take a trip back in time with me. Sure, absolutely. Hopefully, um, you know, I'll stay on the positive and not divulge too many you know, the kind of secrets that usually come forth when you're either drinking too much or you're too candid. <laughs> Are you drinking right now? Uh, iced tea. Okay. All right. So this might but be not a, fairly, a fairly calm podcast for the most part. Uh, yeah. You, you don't know me that well then. <laughs> <laughs> Is iced tea then the drink? Do you do you get a little crazy on iced tea? You know, I've uh, I switched to iced tea uh about last year or so, because I used to be heavily caffeinated, uh, Coke and you know anything that had huge doses of it, and sure. switching to tea has just made it so much. You know, gives me that fix without uh, overdosing. So um, it's good for you, and I love it. Does it help wake you up? Is it? Are you? Is it still caffeinated tea? It's still caffeinated tea. Yeah, I, I right. wouldn't. Think, okay. I wouldn't. I would never drink decaf. It, it feels like uh, <laughs> you know beer without the alcohol content. Right. Like, what's the point? But uh, <laughs> no, it's honestly just honey and tea. Is it tastes so perfect when you brew it just right? And pretty much my only default drink at this point. Understandable. I like it. And good for you for uh, you know to, trying to make steps in the right direction, be a little healthier. I get that. Oh, ever since I had a uh, health. Gamification startup. I've, I've been much more cognizant of the fact that I'm slowly dying and because of my habits, <laughs> which well, oddly we'll... enough are the, are the kind of habits that make you really great at making games. So it's uh, try to figure out how to balance those two is the tricky part. All right. Well, let's start at the beginning. We'll get to talking about the startups. Um, take me all the way back. Uh, how did you end up getting into the game industry in the first place? I pretty much knew I had to get into games because I wasn't qualified to do anything else. You know, I've, <laughs> I've always had this um, 
trait about me about not being able to focus or really kind of like stick to anything unless I'm deeply passionate about it. And uh, games was the answer, quite frankly. So my first gig was in games. And you know, I built my first game when I was like in eighth grade. So for me, the, the combination of being able to be creative, be able to code and get your word out there was really the glue that finally set my life in a certain direction. Uh, tell me about this game you built in eighth grade. What was that project? Oh lordy, that game is. Uh, <laughs> so that you know that game was. It's a fascinating story because uh, I shouldn't have made it. It was for American history class, and I hated writing. So rather than write an essay, I wanted to make a game and didn't tell a teacher about it. I just wanted to do this, and um, it was an epiphany for me because it was the first time I ever read through a whole textbook. Fascinated with like colonial America and um, it's you know it's a kind of typical game an eighth grader would make where you're in a going back in time to stop this assassin from killing Benjamin Franklin and you know real cheesy sort of stuff although I guess today you could call that Assassin's Creed but this is <laughs> Assassin's Creed in basic okay. uh, on my Apple IIe and um, yeah you know when it came time to uh, turning in the uh, the work the Teacher decided everyone's going to go up and present what they worked on. At that point, I was I was freaking out, and um, mainly because you know I wasn't sure how anyone's going to react to it. So went up there, got these you know stares of as I was talking about this game I made, and I was actually more focused on the fact that I ate something not so ripe in you know in in the morning and uh, just had to make a high tell to the bathroom and just tore off halfway through my presentation. So I thought I failed. Wow, and. Um, but they loved it, got an A in the class. The school ended up buying the uh, the game and used it as a teaching tool. And ever since then, it was, you know, for me, like, this was it. This is what I knew, wanted to do, was, like, tell interactive stories. That's an awesome story. The school actually bought the game? Yeah, they did. Um, it was, um, I, I went to school actually in, um, let's see, grade school. It was Saudi Arabia. I moved around the world quite a lot. So we went to this, uh, we went to an American compound, a lot of expats. And so, um, yeah, the school, you know, being a much more sort of different environment than here in the U.S. was like, you know, this is really cool. And, you know, they used it as a tool, um, mainly because, you know, I kind of cribbed what was already in the textbooks, just retold through very simple vector-based graphics and the stories I always tell as you run around Philadelphia, which is, you know, happens to be a grid. So it made it real easy to create a grid-based, dungeon-based like kind of game, right? And um, yeah, it was a lot of fun. Learn, learn how to program, learn how to do art back then. And that was really the start of it at that point. So then from there, were you gaining more skills programming? Did you make more games in high school? And, and I guess, did you end up going to college for game design? So here's where things get tragic, right? You know, <laughs> like when you start to become a teenager, you want to be cool. When I realized how uncool being a geek was, I, I really dropped a lot of that um and it wasn't until about high, you know college again when i realized how much of an impact that was for me so i didn't study uh programming i didn't study anything game related it's not like i could it's not like you know gaming was ever taught back then oh sure um but i've always done it on the side i've always been more of a hacker you know i love drawing I used to draw comic books as well and so it for me it just realized now that i think about a career path I'm like, well, you know what? I could do this. Um, you know, I can get into games. I can make it. You know, back then I went to University of Virginia. There was nothing like this on the East Coast. So I literally hopped in a car to go to the West Coast, you know, for a games job. Um, I actually had this job offer from back then it was called Mindscape. And, um, 
literally a week before I was joined, they they rescinded the offer. But I didn't want to tell anybody. I said, like, this is what I was going to do. So I still went out there. Oh, wow. Um, my dad bought me a car thinking that I could pay for it. And, uh, yeah, just drove cross country. And at that point, I went door to door saying, like, you know what? This is what I want to do. And ended up at uh, U.S. Gold, which is, you know, ended up being IDOS. And had the good fortune eventually breaking in and doing all sorts of, you know, what I call entry-level tasks, like getting people's coffee, crunching data, and uh, got to work on Tomb Raider and a couple of other cool games. And that was really kind of the start of the formal, you know, game career path. That's incredible. That's uh, uh, That would be too terrifying for me to just hop in a car that my dad had bought me without a job and, and, and driving off. Were, were you... Were you scared at that point? Were you ever worried? Or did you just know that, that you were going to figure it out one way or another? You know, I think I was a lot more scared telling them the fact that I lost the job <laughs> and pretending <laughs> like I still had one. But, you know, the, the beautiful thing is about, I think, your passion and ultimately realizing that maybe you don't have any other options is you double down hard. And for me, games was really the path that I only knew how, like, everything fit together. I couldn't see myself doing anything else, couldn't visualize it. So... I just had to make it happen and you know, had to work a couple of jobs at the same time because back then you were paid squat. I think I don't think I broke 20,000, you know, working in San Francisco. But um, yeah, it it for me, it was the mindset that I want to do anything game related. And it could have been a marketing, could have been a QA, could have worked in the assembly line. And I did all that like in the first half of my career, just every part of the games industry. I, I just jumped at it. Did you ever end up telling your dad what happened? I did, you know, and uh, interestingly enough, he was very open to it because, you know, in college, I was actually going to uh, switch to being an art major, and uh, he was in Taiwan at the time, and he flew back to the U.S. to tell me, "Hell no!" So, <laughs> I, you know, I, I picked a career, I picked a, a you know major that was much more appropriate, which was in uh, the business, but. Um, Afterwards, he opened up quite a bit because he has a very similar career path. I mean, he, he had a business background. He did technology. Um, and, you know, for him, games seemed like a the kind of thing that we could talk about. He could believe in. And he finally opened up like, hey, you know, if you, you whatever you decide to do, I'll support you. And, and that includes if you want to start up your own company, you know, uh, I'll invest in it. I, if you fail at it, you can always come back and live with us. And um, so knowing that, I think made it much more um, appropriate, if you will, to take bigger risks. Otherwise, I think the fear of falling and fear of failing is the kind of thing that holds people back usually. Yeah, that's a big deal. And that has to be heartening to have so much support um, and knowing that, yeah, if you take a huge risk and you do end up failing, that maybe there's somebody to catch you or, or you know, kind of pick you up if you fall. Yeah, it definitely is. You know, just thinking back, um, one of those things that you start to realize how important certain people are in terms of just saying that, you know, it's not like they can make these things happen for you. But knowing that um, you could put aside your, your ego or your fear of failing because you know that people will always catch you is the kind of thing that, you know, will make people take bigger risks. And uh, yeah, you know, I think it's one of those things as I'm, you know, thinking about settling down as well that I want to part of my kids as well sure all right so you are in san francisco you mm -hmm. are hustling hard you're working multiple jobs you have a degree in business um and you're you want to be in the games industry and you're you're making it happen what happens next the next opportunity for me was um 
I ended up back on the East Coast at Bethesda Softworks. Um, and it was because I, I love the Elder Scroll franchise and the thought that you can take something, which at back then was a, a relatively unknown game. Uh, it was up to the second one. Arena did really well, but Daggerfall was really kind of the big proving ground for them. And um, they, they were still very indie. And I love that aspect because for me, I knew eventually if I wanted to make my own games that I had to learn every aspect of the business. And I could see myself learning all that at Bethesda. So I moved back East Coast of all things and uh, worked with uh, a whole bunch of different things from like marketing to QA, which is honestly probably one of the worst jobs to have. If, if you ever played like Bethesda's games, you could their QA has got to be the most hellacious job fixing all their open world <laughs> products. Um, and I got to do some design and even had to work the assembly line packaging games because they were so successful in generating pre-orders, like, you know, something like a million, some units. Um, they didn't have enough product and they had to call everybody down to work in the warehouse and, you know, shovel product. And I embraced it. I loved it. I loved this aspect of being able to do something like that you normally wouldn't be able to allow to. Yeah, that's incredible. I, I really love that mindset you were going into of just wanting to learn every corner of the industry because you were so uh, forward thinking. Did that end up being, you know, a really positive experience for you out at Bethesda? You said you loved it, but uh, I mean, did you did you leave on good terms? Did you learn everything you wanted to? <laughs> well, <laughs> Uh, you know, I want to say yes, absolutely. I learned everything <laughs> I wanted to, uh, but Bethesda back then was one crazy-ass place to work. Um, <laughs> there were all sorts of crazy shenanigans going on. and um, This is know, like second half of the 90s, right? This was the second half of the 90s, yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. I mean, there were... Honestly, I think you know you hear these things all the time in the industry, just because you have creative people, business people who are all trying to figure things out. But like, you know, I we, I've seen fist fights between our CFO, who was a woman. Oh my gosh! And our lead programmer. I've seen you know our one of our lead developers go to jail for trying to steal code. There what? were all sorts of crazy things happening back in Bethesda. <laughs> Um, that I'm glad they were able to get past because the crew that was there when I was there is still there. Guys like Todd Howard and Vlaco, and they are absolutely amazing visionaries in, in making games. And um, they stuck to it, maybe because there weren't many options on the East Coast. And Bethesda today is really kind of at the forefront of making uh, you know, a brand of games that no one dares touch. In fact, I mean... Really, at the end of the day, the Elder Scrolls almost killed Bethesda because they ran out of money making that uh, particular product. And uh, I remember distinctively, they're saying, like, we have to ship now because uh, we're out of money. And uh, I'm thinking to myself, well, the game's not done. What, what do you mean we have to ship it? <laughs> we're like, well, you know, we have a lot of pre-orders, so um, let's, we got to do this. And, and what I mean by done is like you literally could not beat the game. Um, and, you know, today may not be such of a big issue because you could patch. But back then you had to like mail like three, you know, those floppy disks every time you patch. And they patched it 13 times wow. just to get it to work. Yeah. But um, it, it really kind of spoke to the power of how they built such a loyal following community who believed in quite frankly, that no one else would ever dare to build such an open world like this again. And if we fail at this, no one, you know, it, that kind of dream dies with it. 
So everyone wanted to double down on that. And um, you know, I did a lot of work around building the communities back then, um, getting people um, at that point you know, copies of the game, which was unheard of. Like, you know, the industry was very secretive for many years. And so, um, you know, a, a lot of the, I think when you think about community outreach today, that is very sort of emblematic of a lot of game industry uh, companies, you know, doing the outreach with YouTube and Twitter, social media, and bringing in people to play. A, a lot of it started around, you know, when Bethesda was willing to open its doors to let everyone in to kind of see the warts and all, if you will, around like what it takes to make games and buy into the process, if you will. When you were at Bethesda, I mean, the second half of the 90s, like we established, did you feel like you were at the forefront of something, at the cutting edge of something special? I did. Um, I mean, I didn't... I did not realize, I think, that Bethesda would become the type of company it is today. I don't think anyone can ever you know, envision anything that big. Right. But um, I did believe in that they were very true to building something that was just unheard of in typical game development, right? Um, customized worlds that you would literally build piece by piece, um, telling stories that would have literally like, you know, 20 Bibles fulls of content to flesh out the world. It was just, you know, creative process for the pure sake of creative process. Maybe that's why they ran out of money. Um, <laughs> but it um, it set the foundation for a really fleshed out world that if you kind of think about like every iteration of the game since then goes back to that same lore. They, they basically mapped out what is, you know, the next possible five, six games that could be built on top of this world. So uh, in terms of that perspective, it, it was absolutely amazing to see that thinking process come to. And I think a lot of it had to do with, again, you know, Todd Howard, who was a great visionary in terms of like how to turn um, the world into playable mechanics. And back then there was a guy named Bruce Nesmith, which I, th I think he's still at Bethesda. Um, he came from like Dungeons and Dragons world and how to flesh out worlds on pen and paper that you can fully visualized in your head and turn it into like, you know, visual graphics in a game. I want to talk about uh, a couple of things that you mentioned in that story before we move on. Um, and one of those is uh, you said you headed back out to the East coast. And uh, one thing that you actually said in that story was that a lot of people were working at Bethesda, staying at Bethesda because there weren't a lot of options on the East coast. Looking at the present day, what are your thoughts on, you know, working in the East Coast versus the West Coast. Some people say you need to be in the West Coast to really, you know, feel attached to the game industry. You know, I would say that uh, it's a lot less the scenario. Um, I, I would, you know, the world has changed fundamentally because of technology, internet technology. The fact that any indie developer can start up anywhere today and even have a fully remote team means that you really don't have to be in a one place. Now, there's huge advantages of the West Coast, which is like mindset. You know, like in D.C., it feels like everyone just wants to talk politics. And if you're in L.A., everyone wants to talk to the entertainment industry. And out here in Silicon Valley, it's all about tech. Um, so, you know, being with like-minded people helps. But the reality is, if you take a look at all the top developers on Steam today, their studios are not West Coast. They're all over the place. And I think that speaks to the fact that great people all over and you don't have to go to one place anymore to spin it up. But yeah, back then, very different story. <laughs> yeah, and that's valid. And I, and I understand that. I mean, it's 
it's still somewhat of a modern miracle that I can have a full interview with John Master Lee over the internet. And I mean, you sound borderline crystal clear. So it's impressive the work that we're able to do now. And, and I think I would probably agree with you that um, mindset is definitely part of it. And there's nothing like being in front of somebody in person uh, and connecting with somebody that way and working with somebody that way. But uh, there are a lot of options. The world is much smaller now because of what we're able to do with the internet. I, you know, the the one thing I would always tell people regarding like career advice is you really got to go where you're where you think you can thrive, right? And if you have a lot of family, let's say Detroit, stay in Detroit, build up what you can, because this industry is going at such a scale that there's no shortage of new opportunities. And, um, you know, partly because I think I never had roots growing up, we moved around the world quite a bit. I've always had a particular fancy of just say, whatever the next cool opportunity is, whatever the cool game is, I will go to it. So, I've moved around quite a bit just because of that reason. But, um, you know, I think ultimately people don't have to move to where the company is unless they want to be there and explore that culture and, you know, the, the local environment, if you will. Um, but, you know, I, it's amazing how you can do everything remotely today. And, you know, I think games like, you know, Bastion, which, you know, when Game of the Year was built almost entirely through a remote team. And... Um, Imagine how much better every year the technology gets. Yeah, true too. Uh, one other question before we continue with the story is, um, you, you talked about uh, shipping the game early before it was done. And, you know, looking at modern day, you're right. You can patch things so easily. It's not that big of a deal. But what are your thoughts about um, people and specifically indie devs? Because this is the Indie Insider podcast. Uh, what are your thoughts on shipping a game early? What are your thoughts on, on early access is... Are there upsides, downsides? What do you see? Well, to me, there's a fundamental sort of shift that the industry needs to go through in terms of how they think about making games, right? Because back then, you know, you build big worlds, but you really don't know when to stop, right? Worlds are, in general, a infinite sort of level of scope in either going, you know, from point A to point B or infinite level of depth, which is, you know, how much... Can, how deep can you interact? And um, it's a dangerous way to develop. And Bethesda is a great example of one that got lucky, right? But what if they ran out of money? What if people didn't believe in them and Elder Scrolls today is, is dead? So, you know, I think a big part of it, and for me, the awakening in terms of how to make games actually came out more of when I moved more into the startup world to start my own company, start my game development studio, and learning different methods of how to iterate towards eventually building out a world, right? It's not about like keep building till you think that's done. And I hear developers say when it's done, it's never done. The reality is you, <laughs> you keep adding stuff. You keep, you know, you look at League of Legends. Is that game ever done? It's never going to be done. Um, but the question is how much is good enough so that you have completed gameplay loops, that it's a tight, fun experience, that people get something out of it. It isn't crash prone. And saying like, you know what, you need to get that out as quickly as possible, because at the end of the day, you don't know how the market's going to react, one. And then second, you don't know really, ultimately, what are the nuances that they want to go deeper into. So if you don't know, you build huge worlds that go in every direction. That's dangerous if you're an indie developer, or quite frankly, for any game developer, even if you have what is seemingly unlimited pocketbook. Valid points. And... and uh... And that's some great insight. So thank you for sharing that. Uh, with 
Bethesda, heading back to the story, you worked there for uh, two-ish years, is that right? A couple years, I think like three years, um, wrapped up, you know, Daggerfall, started to work on this offshoot game called Redgar, which I thought was, you know, way underrated in the Elder Scroll world. Hmm. And um, that's, after that point, I wanted to start up a company. I, I thought I, you know, had learned quite a bit and uh, joined up with some buddies of mine uh, from, you know, University of Virginia. We did a startup. And you, you hadn't been arrested or anything? And, you know, you hadn't gotten in too many fights, it sounds like, at Bethesda? Uh, you know, I was a much more of an observer at that point. I was a young guy <laughs> trying to figure out, like, all right, is this normal behavior? Um, I mean, there was, oh, goodness, it, it was a tough place to work. So I thought it was more dangerous to get into trouble than to just kind of sit back and do what I was told. But I remember, like, our director of operations, who was a guy who was in the military one day just, like, going home crying because he was yelled at from our CFO who was uh, – yeah, she was she was kind of a tyrant, if you will, and uh, you know, an environment that just felt very toxic back then. Sure. So for me, I think I was honestly just thankful for being given a chance to you know learn a lot of different things, and never having to perhaps stick around long enough where it eventually settled in and you know turned me to an ugly bastard too. <laughs> well, you made it out of uh 1990s Bethesda alive and you started your own startup. What was this company and and who were you starting it up with? Uh it was just two buddies of mine and uh, who went to University of Virginia and you know, they all had different reasons to do it like uh, but in essence it was like a social network for event planning. Uh for me it was I used to hold a lot of gaming nights, right? People get together, land parties, you know, street fighter tournaments and stuff like that. And uh, I never had an easy way to get people together to plan these sort of things. So we created this um service called Please RSVP. And you could probably think of the modern day equivalent of like with Evite or, you know, event planning type of software. And um, we, we got it off the ground and uh, grew that thing, did all of our own development, never took outside funding and you know, eventually sold the company off. Oh, wow. I mean, that's a huge deal to, to not take on, um, you know, debt or, you know, uh, huge investors or anything like that and, and to eventually sell it off, I, I imagine, uh, for a profit. Yeah, it wasn't too bad. You know, it paid, paid for my first portion and then some. Um, <laughs> you know, I think um, it, for me, it, having the business degree that eventually got in college was the boon. Like, it made me think about ultimately, even though I love the creative process of building stuff, that ultimately you really had to think about, like, who you're building for and what's your path towards growth or profitability. And one of the things I loved about that model was that you could either spend a lot of marketing dollars trying to acquire users, or if you happen to hold a birthday party, invite 50 people, you suddenly have 50 other people who just got invited to join your network. So we were able to grow the company very cost effectively and uh, was eventually acquired by, of all things, like an email marketing company because they had 50 million users. So for us was, we had a great product, they had 50 million people, this seemed like a really good marriage, and uh, we, you know, we bit down and went for it. All right, so then you you sold it off. You paid for your Porsche. What what happens from there? <laughs> so from there, I um, was working with a, another startup that, um, of all things, end up becoming the precursor to text messaging. A friend of mine invented it, um, but. Um, 
I decided that I wanted to go back to grad school um, because and this is one of those learning lessons as well was, you know, when my company got acquired, I'm sitting here reading the contract, going over everything. And honestly, it was just way over my head and uh, signed a deal that, quite frankly, when I was looking back, it was a pretty shitty deal. And um, you're young, you're impetuous, you're going like, all right, you know what, I'll go for more stock instead of cash, perhaps. And then um, the company that bought us got acquired, and you get locked in again, and then they got caught in some SEC investigation for legal accounting practices, and you watch your stock drop from 90 bucks to 90 cents within 30 days. Wow. Like all these sort of crazy things back in the internet days make you go like, you know what? I am never going to get caught like that again. I'm going to go back, understand how business really works, how to read contracts, how to like, you know, do business deal, how to negotiate. So I was fortunate to um, go to Columbia um, and uh, Columbia Business School and kind of, you know, use that as an opportunity to see what I wanted to do next. Uh, Did a lot of research work for them. So that paid for, in essence, that I had to pay for it. Um, and um, got to move to New York City, which was, uh, you know, an amazing place. And that's when I discovered, I guess, really the next phase of my life, which was digital gaming instead of like traditional like box retail stuff and how the world was shifting in that direction. Right. Well, before I move too far away from it, I have a couple of business questions for you. Um, and probably the number one is there are indie devs out there signing contracts all the time and working with other companies, publishers and freelancers and, and, you know, major distributors. What do you, what do you say to those people who maybe don't have, you know, the same level of business experience as you do, but they're, you know, working with their content and their games and, and things that they've put their time and their money into? Boy, I don't think there's an easy answer for this because everyone's going to say, you know what, you should get a lawyer to look at stuff. And the reality is, if you most people could afford lawyers, they would have them. Uh, the reality is most people don't, and most people would even know how to work with them. So, you know, ultimately, a, a lot of the issues that contracts bring up have little to do with the terms, per se, than it has to do with whether or not the people that you're jumping in bed with, you trust that they're ultimately going to look out for you. Right. And so a lot of that does come down to the relationship. A lot of that does come down to um, what position you come in from and recognizing how much further can they get you ahead. Now, the vast majority of people are never going to create the next big, like, say, Minecraft, in which case you, you know, you don't want to sign over, like, the whole rights to something like that. (laughs) But, um, you know, I think more and more publishers today and more of the people on the business side have come down from the kind of crazy deals from before where they wanted exclusive rights and then the rights to your sequel. You know, I've seen scenarios that I've been in where, uh, and I won't say the company, but you know, they would put stuff in the contract that says they can even fire people on your team if they didn't like them. Oh, wow. And you know, you're sitting there, you're going like, well, do I say no in those scenarios? Like we actually ended up did say no, but you know, most people can't afford to turn down, you know, such a, an opportunity. Right. And so, you know, I think you have to almost treat like every successor gave me work on as like a level up step, right? And hopefully you can see explicitly how they're going to get you from point A to point B on that next run. And then you need to set yourself up in a way where each successor product that you work on allows you to introduce the next big thing. But um, I wouldn't worry too much about thinking like you're going to fear 
like fearing business people where you sign over all rights that, you know, um, you're going to lose everything. Because I, I think those days are mostly past us at this point. And uh, for the most part, people see the value of working with really good developers because there's, you know, there's a million people who could paint and there's only so few Picassos that the last thing you want to do is piss off Picasso. <laughs> yeah, that's a valid point. Uh, one other question for you is, uh, looking not from the developer standpoint, but perhaps from those aspiring um, businessmen and businesswomen who want to get into this industry and and work in the business of games, should mm-hmm. they be going to you know get degrees in business? Should they be getting uh, their graduate degrees in business like you did? You know, I think for me, understanding the how technology and design and business fit together is what fascinates me, right? It, and it isn't even so much just the product that I create, like the games and the, how they're used to tell a story and, and, and convey an experience, but it's really the game industry as a whole. But that's a lot for most people to digest, and most people will go down a very specific track, mm-hmm. in which case I would absolutely say if you want to become good at business, yeah, get a degree in business. It's going to help a hell of a lot. You want to become a programmer? Study how to program, build stuff. Um, but, you know, studying today is really, honestly, for me, I think in the industry, an excuse for time off to really master a craft. Um, and if you aren't using that time to go build something on your own, you're really kind of wasting that time. It, it, there's almost like no excuse anymore to not pick up something like Unity, which is free, to connect with other developers through some sort of like network and build something small. Because I guarantee you that's going to get you your first foot of the door much better than, you know, saying that you went to school and you're saying you're a big fan of games. Because most people have gone to school and most people who want to work in games, yeah, no shit, they're, they're a fan of games. <laughs> but you have to kind of show that you have the ability to actually deliver a product. And uh, that speaks volumes, I think, when you're trying to break in the industry. Makes a lot of sense. All right, so you go and uh, you're now in New York. You've um, you know gotten your your second degree, your graduate degree now. Um, what happens from there? What happens from there? I'm trying to think back in my life. Oh, so I had the um, opportunity to go work on some Star Wars stuff. THQ spun up a new um, mobile digital division, and they got the rights to Star Wars. And you know, Star Wars being my favorite franchise of all time i was like i'm gonna go do it so i went to hit up that franchise and launch that worldwide which was a absolute hoot treat so um moved back (laughs) to la and uh which is where thq was at the time and um yeah i got to see a dream come true so how did that type of you know uh, dream job come about for you i mean were you pursuing that did you reach up to thq or did they seek you out um, I had to seek them out because after grad school, the it, it was a couple of years since I worked on a game, and uh, the game industry tends to be much more hit-driven. In other words, you stand out and you get return phone calls a lot more based off the last product you worked on. So right. I really had to kind of go find what was new and interesting. And for me, it was you know just trying to dig around. It's like, oh, what next game do I want to work on? And the opportunity to work on stars, which was actually you know a drop in pay, even drop in title, but I thought it was a once in a lifetime opportunity. You know that was like the last movie, Revenge of the Sith. I really thought Star Wars was over. Lo and behold, it's not. <laughs> so you know, 
catch 22 there about like, all right, do I do this or not? And it, at the end of the day, it was a really phenomenal experience. Got to go, you know, I got to meet, you know, George Lucas, go to Skywalker Ranch, come up with new ideas and characters. And it was, it was a heck of a lot of fun. That's very, very cool. Uh, and then you didn't work there for too terribly long, did you? No, I only stayed there for about a year and a half because, quite frankly, after that, I was so sick of Star Wars that I, like, <laughs> I needed a break from it. It, it was such night. It was literally my whole life because uh, we had it was a worldwide launch, so everything had to come together for Star Wars, right? And I don't know if you you know had to work on something where literally like the deadline is hard, it can't move. But I would like travel from Asia to Europe, coordinate three teams, and go into all the events trying to figure out, you know, what Yoda's translation is in Yugoslavian. Like, it was like a million things that had to go on to try to figure out all these things. And uh, it, it just burned me out. It, and uh, I kind of had to take a break from that. So what did you end up doing to take a break? Um, I wanted to, I, you know, it's ironic because it, I'm not so sure it ended up being that way. I always say I'm going to you know, slow down. It ends up being even more tense. But um I ended up joining up with uh, Hudson Entertainment after that. So um, Hudson Entertainment, this was before they were acquired by Konami. Uh, but these right. were the guys who launched a Turbo Graphic system. They um, you know, had Bomberman. They had all these really great classic franchises. And they hadn't been in the U.S. for about 10 years, but they were hugely popular and beloved in Japan. So they wanted to you know, launch a North American studio. And the thought of building you know, a studio from the ground up for uh, you know classic brands that i love and bomberman literally is like one of my top five favorite games of all time <laughs> so for me it's like all right another great franchise that i really wanted to work on and uh joined up with them and it was like a you know small company back in the u.s like 10 people the ceo and you know and who's my boss and it worked like we all became really great friends you know helton had this kind of culture like if you ever go google them and read watch the old youtube videos it's it's like what the game industry should be, right? It's nothing corporate at all. It was founded by like two Japanese brothers called the Kudos Brothers, but they had such quirky behavior. Like one of them would always dress up like an American cowboy, even though you know he never been to America. <laughs> and um, you know they they called the company Hudson because they, when they were children, they used to like sneak on the train that would pass by and just travel like for like miles and miles on it. And it was uh, the Hudson train. And they literally bought that locomotive like car when you know the company did well and put it in front of their office. Like it's crazy stuff like that that had such culture. And I was like, this is I love this. I would love to be able to, you know, work on games that develop, but also kind of like bring back that quirky sense of like game development culture to uh, to to the US. And so did that end up being, you know, what happened? Did you end up having a great time there and, and it really was that great of a culture? Yeah, I would say definitely it was a highlight of uh, my work career because um, everyone realized that this was, um, you know, like if you think about it about today, like in gaming, it, you know, so much of it is revolved around working with the community, right? YouTube, everything feels very raw and very real. But that was not the case of the game industry back even just 10 years ago. Like everything was very secretive, right? It's like you need scan cards to go everywhere. As if, like, you know, everyone's making nukes from North Korea, right? It's like trade secrets of the game. Yeah, you can't talk about anything. You couldn't really share anything. And so we realized we had a huge competitive advantage if we could find a way to show what was the culture was like to get people to, to fall in love with that. 
And so we would do some really crazy stuff like YouTube video-esque, you know, behind-the-scenes mockumentaries um, that um, gave a lot of inside glimpse to the, the culture. Like Hudson, Japan, had this dude named 16Shot. Um, and um, he was called 16Shot because he could press a joystick button 16 times in a second. And he was like the all-time champ for like like shoot 'em ups, right? And he would travel around in the yellow bus, and he would get mobbed by people in Japan like he's a rock star. And you hear about that kind of rock star mentality in Japan all the time. That did not exist in the U.S. Right. And so uh, we did that. We started to put a lot of our you know stuff on social media, and I, mean, I got in trouble even at that point because there's so much resistance from you know a Japanese company which is tends to be very conservative um, to the point where. My boss, the CEO, at one point had to go to Japan and get down on his knees and literally uh, say sorry for some of the crazy shit I did. Oh, wow. Because I would, I would get into trouble all the time. I was ahead of marketing at that point. So I was thinking about you know, ways to get people to recognize our products and, you know, um, and what we stood out for, which at that time was like digital download was, was huge for us. We really focused on that. I was going to ask what you were doing there, but you just said head of marketing. What was marketing like back? I mean, this is, uh, I guess, second half of the 2000s probably at this point. Um, and you said, you know, you're you're putting things on social media at this point. You, you're kind of cultivating this this quirky culture. Um, what do you think about company culture as part of your marketing and uh, both, I guess, in that time period and in present day 2017? Well, that was really the start of marketing feeling genuine i.e it was a conversation that you would have with users versus a here's my clean marketing message that i'm going to tell you and i'm going to tell you to go buy stuff right um to an environment where you would also factor in like the kind of product the kind of people you want to cater to as part of it so it's a tremendous shift and um you know traditional market used to be like you put together ads buy stuff in magazines on the television look very slick everything honestly looked the same it was like a lot of big explosions people looking like they're having a good time <laughs> and it was just the most fake you know you know getty stock photos you could find of what they thought was geeks and gamers um, and then when you start to put out stuff like raw video um, and us being you know real about what we're doing, having a good time and doing it, it was a huge dramatic shift. And Hudson was at the forefront of that. Um, that really opened the door with companies like Capcom at that point was also started to really jump into with a Capcom Unity program. And they really ran with it. And, you know, that EA and a bunch of other companies started to follow suit, perhaps not with the sort of same impact, you know, because. Sometimes the stuff feels very corporate in nature if you don't do it right. Um, but uh, it definitely opened the doors where today it's it, it's almost like the default way you have to communicate with people. Like, you know, if it feels too packaged, people aren't buying it anymore. Too slick, don't works. Sure. And that seems like something that's important for um, indie developers to keep in mind, even on a much smaller scale, is kind of that um, transparency with their audience and with their consumers and... Um, you know, showing kind of their uh, truthfulness and, uh, you know, that aspect of, of what they're doing and, and communicating through that. Um, it's probably true even on a smaller scale, right? Yeah, I, you hit a nail right on the head there, right? I mean, you know, as an indie developer, you you ultimately have to recognize that the two key advantages you have that the big guys can't ever tap is your brain, right? What, what you create. And ultimately... 
a willingness to go as raw as possible and keeping the conversation two-way, which means that you then have to be also honest when like shit doesn't work, right? When things don't work, when you really do need their help to help either troubleshoot stuff like bug test or come up with ideas. Most big companies are top-down managed, which makes it very hard for them to let go of that sort of pristine image, if you will. So it's a huge advantage that I don't think a lot of indies take advantage of more enough of. You know, they'll, they'll do the, cust- you know, a bit of social media post here, they'll go on Twitch here, but to really envelop it into your creative process, rather than to think of it as, let me finish my game, and then I'll start talking, is where the distinction of, I, I think, you know, how indies, you know, basically can compete in the long run. Sure, and that makes a lot of sense. Uh, I like what you say about, um, you know, that that those are the factors that set you apart and that you have uh, as an indie developer as tools. Um, so that's great. So you're head of marketing, you're doing some great things, you're getting in trouble. Uh, what happens next? Where do you go from there? I uh, was inspired to start up a new venture. Uh, you know, I think while I love working with, you know, the, the my Japanese counterparts, uh, in fact, I spent like half the time in Japan when I was working there. Um, actually met up with like Kojima a couple of times because we worked out of the same office and Konami. So they got acquired by Konami, right? Gradually and eventually very aggressively. Hudson's name probably, I don't think really even exists anymore. Everything's part of the Konami collective now. Sure. And uh, going corporate didn't appeal to me. So I started up a new venture that uh, at that point was just kind of exploratory. It was a lot of different, I was working on my own games again, which was fun. You know, I launched the Flash game. They had downloaded a million times with my chance to get back to coding and did some consulting for Sega worked with the CEO to basically help them overhaul their mobile division to you know go more um, to really kind of embrace the free-to-play model because back then everyone was kind of selling you know games as if it's like in a 299 by Sonic and nobody does that anymore hmm. and uh, did that for a couple years until I joined up with uh, Raptor which was a um, very cool game activity tracking platform that um, has, you know, scaled to become a huge company, like probably 40 million people now and spun off with Plays TV at this point. So I just want to clarify real quick. You Mm -hmm. were just talking uh, for a minute and you said things like, I made a game and, you know, sold a million copies, whatever, no big deal. And worked with Sega and overhauled stuff for them, no big deal. Like, I don't know, you just make all these things sound um, so nonchalant, but they're really impressive things. I mean, it's, there are people who would kill to have experiences like that. And uh, in your, you know, your career experience, it's, it's, you know, uh, another thing on the checklist. It's, it's extremely cool. I appreciate you coming on the show and sharing these stories with me. Hmm. Yeah. I never thought about that way. You know, it's, <laughs> it's a, it's a fascinating observation, I guess. Yeah. Um, you know, they only come up, I guess, when I'm interviewing, but for me, it, it's a lot less important for those, I guess, feathers of the hat than, Honestly, in which you probably hear more of, like, I get a lot more excited talking about the cool games I work on. Like, it, it's a passion, you know, it's it's a passion-driven career path. And so when I get to work on games like Bomberman, right, or games like The Elder Scrolls, you, you get me really excited. But the achievements around business, I think, are par for the course when you really are passionate about, like, what you do. I think that's really important uh, to say on a show like this, where we're talking with... Um 
with uh, aspiring developers, people who want to be a part of this industry, people who would love to have, you know, a, a quarter of the career that you've had in this industry. It's so important to keep in mind that, you know, y- y- when you look back on this, you weren't necessarily actively pursuing all of those things. You were just pursuing your passions and then your success came from from within that. Yeah, because you'd be surprised, like I said, if you realize you have no other choice for anything else, or at least you convince yourself of that, and you know you have a particular passion, you find really fun ways to making things work. I mean, like, ultimately, it's not like I really had a shot at working and heading up, like, Bethesda, or, like, you know, Hudson's marketing program. I, I, I was promoted, really, to become the VP of marketing because they realized how good I was at being attuned to that market and you know it was really the first studio to make Bomberman outside of Japan like they gave us the keys to the their number one franchise because they realized how much we would do justice for that game and Bomberman Live ended up winning like game of the year and uh, sold millions of copies on Xbox Live you know, I think at the end of the day you have to make sure that you translate your passions into something very tangible and deliverable. So the milestones that I mentioned for me, at least feel like the culmination of all the hard work you put into it. But the outcome to me still is always secondary to the journey. Like you got to slog through that shit every day. And if you're not passionate about it and you can't get yourself up for it, you're never going to reach that milestone to begin with. And I promise I won't sit on this too long, but I think what you're saying is just so important in this day and age when we live in, in what often feels like a culture driven by accolades and driven by achievements, um, that if, if you're not, you know, achieving this, this, and this, and if you don't have these letters behind your name, or if your resume isn't this long, then, you know, you, you can't be successful. Um, but I mean, what you're saying is something that I think many of us, especially in the indie space, know to be true is that, you know, you need to follow your passions and that's always going to be um, or at least always should be primary and and those successes you know can always come along after absolutely I, you know i think if anything if you look at the last five years and you think back about the games that had reached a staggering level of sales or accolades winning game of the years you'd be shocked how Something like, say, Grand Theft Auto comes up one-tenth of the time. I mean, it all... I mean, go look at Steam right now. They look at the top 20. I would say probably 75% of it are studios built by people from the ground up, from indie developers who came up with something on their own. And if anything, you know, the access to technology that makes this possible, the access to users that make it possible, is your sure aside that man, if you don't take advantage of that today, you're really missing out on a dramatic paradigm shift in gaming. I think that iced tea is working. I'm, I'm enjoying this conversation. This is great. Thank you so much. Excellent, because so. <laughs> this is my second glass of tea, so I, clearly caffeine is working. Excellent. All right, so you're working at Raptor. Um, we've hit the 2010s at this point. You said this is a pretty exciting company. Uh, what was your experience like there? Raptor was interesting because... Um, it wasn't uh, games directly I was working on. In fact, I, I probably work less on games these days than in work on the ecosystem around bringing people together to play games or interactive software. So that's in essence what they did. They had this really cool methodology where they could you know, track all your gameplay activity from mobile to desktop to PC. And um, from that, 
they recognized that, um, and they had about a million users at the time, and they couldn't figure out how to get past it. And the big revelation that you know helped them really kind of get their head around was that your data doesn't mean anything unless you're, you know, there's a milestone to reach, i.e., what's the next milestone you're going to hit as a gamer if you hit certain data? Or if we know something about you, can we serve up information to you that's custom to uh, your experience? So, for instance, and this is not to try to get too brother, big brother scary, but, you know, we <laughs> could tell exactly when you're going to quit playing based off of how often you play and the length of the time that you play. And when you start to know stuff like that, you can start to either suggest tips on like where people are getting stuck or connect you with other people who just finished that area so they can become experts in providing you those tips or recommend other games to you that you might like to play, which as you can imagine, that kind of data becomes very valuable. Like for instance, we could, and I never acted on this information, mind you, but um, like we, <laughs> we would know like, before EA would announce in their shareholder meeting that Madden was not performing in a certain year and that, oh yeah, it, you know, the stock is going to drop um, because of playtime behavior. And we could tell like when something like, you know, Zynga's games had huge level of reach, but um, a, a big problem with um, ultimately getting onto other platforms or the fact that you know, they don't have any ways to engage users so that if they had a new game, you'd lose them if you, you know, lost them on Facebook. So, like, these are all fascinating insights that you can have from that data and um, really kind of inspire me to, to run with that and, again, go off on my own and start up another company around user play behavior data. And what was this company? Uh, it was a company called Wicked Loot that I founded. Um, and uh, this was also kind of a period where I was starting to feel a little stuck in in the bay area i lived here for like maybe six years which is honestly the longest i've lived ever lived anywhere in the world <laughs> and uh decided to move to hawaii and uh we uh got accepted to a uh, accelerator program called blue startups that was founded by of all people the guy who you know, built the tetris empire with uh the, you know, the creative tetris I mean, his name was uh, hank rogers okay and uh, yeah, we spun up a studio, we built uh, a couple of cool uh, arcade games and this user-generated content platform as well. And um, yeah, lived, lived the Hawaiian life for a couple of years. <laughs> How was Hawaii? What's the best part of Hawaii? Oh man, every part. Hawaii is just beautiful. I mean, it really is breathtaking to wake up and smell the ocean every day where and had so much more relaxed, like it it you know it changes the way you think about life and um and i i wasn't too sure about it i actually thought like all right are we actually going to be productive here as a startup because you know startups are life consuming but we did i mean we were very productive you know we would crank all day and all night but at the same time midday we wanted to go to the beach we went to the freaking beach and we wanted to go get <laughs> shave ice we would go get shave ice like you don't lose sight of that type of culture if you will and uh, you, you fully embrace it. And I, I loved it there. Uh, I know you're no longer um, operating out of Hawaii, but did you bring some of that Hawaii mindset back with you as you you know came back to the uh, connected states? You know, it, sadly, probably not enough. I, I think the hardest thing for me to do is slow down and... It's one of the things I grapple with now, actually, um, quite a bit because 
at the end of the day, even though I think I, you know, I want to do a million things, the reality is my physical health prevents it. Like the, the kind of like behavior that you typically would see like on a South Park episode of what a gamer is, is really not a healthy lifestyle. And eating well, sleeping well, managing your time is something that you have to be very proactive about doing because it's just so easy to slip into bad behavior when it comes to making games. And I think that's actually probably one of the biggest detriments to game development as an indie is that you think that everything is life and death and you're committing everything to it and you really put yourself and your family's health, if you will, at risk because of just the poor lifestyle choices you make that have almost become glorified in many ways. I would agree with that. Uh, that's a major topic of discussion, especially, you know, in, in some of the larger companies is this idea of crunch time and this idea of, uh, you know, putting your whole self into something all the time. Yeah, your family can suffer, your health can suffer. Um, your product may end up being great. But, uh, you know, at what point does it does it stop becoming worth it? And, and how do you end up balancing your own personal life? Have you found any tips that have worked for you? in regards to finding a, a better life balance? Um, yes. And I think, I think I'm still learning to apply it. And um, this was one thing that came out of Hawaii, not, not necessarily the Hawaiian culture but specifically, but, you know, when I was, um, when I formed up the team for Wicked Loot, uh, it was relatively a bunch of younger guys. So I thought it would be useful for them to experience an accelerator program, which are very common in the startup world, less so in game development. And what these, you know, accelerated programs do is they give you a chunk of cash, usually small amount for in exchange for also giving you mentorship and a bunch of stuff for a little bit of equity. And um, you learn a methodology in how to get your startup off the ground. And one of the best things that I got from it was this methodology called Lean Startup Methodology. Uh, and there's a great book out there called Eric Reese that has really kind of become the Bible of Silicon Valley. And what he does is it kind of breaks down and makes it so easy to grasp. Honestly, like the book is cheap, but half of it's filler, right? You really kind of grok the whole idea <laughs> in 30 minutes. But the general idea is that the biggest constraint you have as a startup company, which you can then equate to say like indie developer, is resources. You don't have enough money ever. And so you have to be ultra vigilant about prioritizing what you think needs to be solved. And what that means is, more often than not, is you have to go talk with people or get your product out in the most raw form to validate if your hypothesis is correct. And I don't think enough game developers do that. Like, you know, many times we feel like you have to put out something polished. You really have to kind of think things through, build in all the complete loops, when the reality is the core aspect of your game already probably sucks and you just don't know. So rather than build towards, say, like a vertical slice, I, you know, I really advocate for people to like build a prototype, build something small to figure out if there's a market interest. And so you apply that to like a larger scale, you realize actually your whole business can be built in a highly pri prioritized fashion, meaning that you're never going to reach a point of crunch because you know the stuff that you can never get done, and there's always more, is the lowest priority stuff, right? So the general idea is that crunch happens because your game is not done. Well, what if you find a way to get your game done faster, right? Rather than say 20 levels, it's 
five levels. And you can sell it as, you know, the, the first version of the game at a cheaper price. You can live with that kind of stress at a shorter period to find out if something's going to work or not. And that alleviates, in many ways, the biggest issues why crunch exists today is because you did not plan what needed to be done first and foremost. So a lot of this is just kind of setting your priorities in advance of, you know, reaching the point where you're in trouble and where you need to crunch and, and where there are issues. Um, and and like you said, putting out something, a prototype in advance to f- make sure that what you're doing is actually uh, is, is viable and, and something that people want to see. Am I, am I understanding that correctly? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, it, some people think of it as a business methodology, but really it's a, it's a development philosophy, right? One that I think the industry is starting to embrace. Like there's the idea of like, you know, early access, there's alpha stage stuff that people out there, there's Kickstarter now. And, and the general idea is that you have to get people, one is you need to get people on board to buy into your concept to begin with earlier because marketing is a difficult thing to do now. Uh, but second, at the end of the day, it's about validating what you think is going to work or not. And prioritization helps, um, and it's a huge part of the equation, but I think the, the fundamental part is to know what's going to be you know, a path that you can go down eventually, a business that you can grow, a, a livelihood that you can have, you need to be able to turn your assumptions into something that feels a little more concrete than that. So this is something that you actually mentioned to me when we were kind of talking by email before we started, um, was this methodology that was on your mind, um, specifically tied to the lean startup. Mm-hmm. Are you starting to find ways to apply that to your own work and in your own life? I have. Um, in fact, I would say I apply to my life as well. Um, because, you know, me being someone, and I think if you're someone like an indie developer, you probably run into this a lot, right? Where you're doing a million things and you're pulled in a lot of direction and your sanity is always stretched to the limit. So the question is, how do you do this in a way that's sustainable that allows you to do it for many, many years to come, right? Your second, third or fourth, fifth game. And it comes down to saying like, what are the most important things you got to do? Um, what are things you can give to other people? And then everything else you just don't even think about. And, you know, a big part of it for me was, it, you know, it actually went this far for me. Like, I literally said, you know what, I, every time I look, walk around my house, I see a lot of history about all the things I worked on before, but it's visual noise. And one of the beautiful things about, like, when I was working with Japan and in Hawaii, which is very, you know, Japanese influence now, is that they have very simplified lifestyles, right? Everything's very clean. Everything is very simple in their house. So I say, I'm going to get rid of everything. Um... And my wife and I did. It was actually a game for us. Like, for instance, I had to get rid of my huge swag collection and all my games. <laughs> if she agreed to get rid of all her shoes and all her clothes. And I didn't think she would dare to do it, but she went along with it. And we would say, all right, if I got rid of this, you got rid of this. Like, I, I probably sold like $20,000 worth of, you know, highly collectible items. Wow. And, um, and we basically live very simple now and it was the hugest stress relief of not having to think about what to clean up what to package up if every time you move um and you know the fact that i could store things digitally now you know i have like i used to have all this artwork that i had drawn over the years that i would just you know make copies of it and it's on my computer it's it's a huge stress relief to not have to see it or think about it and uh you know it was inspired by the lean methodology of ultimately like you know you 
you may think you have the resources or the mental capacity to do all this, but the reality is it's all just a distraction from what you think is really the most important thing you got to do. Well, that's really fascinating. Um, one more time, just if people aren't familiar, although it's a, a fairly well-known book. Um, I actually heard of it before, but it's The Lean Startup. Um, who wrote that book? Uh, a guy by the name of Eric Reese. Eric Reese, that's right. Mm-hmm. And you could probably grok most of it right on his website. But um, the book does such a great job of giving you actual examples of like big companies that had used something like this before. And you make make, it makes you feel like actually this is a very valid approach versus one where, man, this is just for people who got no money and no idea how to build anything. And a lot of game developers think like just because they can build the game, you know, better than say like, you know, uh, a lot of the big guys doesn't mean you should build like the big guys. Um, A great example was that, you know, before Groupon became like really the number one coupon site out there, they just spun up like a WordPress site for a deal. And they would just have people leave comments in the section and say, I want this deal just to see if people cared about if you reach like say 20 people who commented, everyone gets the discount And, and it worked. And they had to like manually ship out the coupons, you know, when they were doing it. But it was enough to validate that they should build a whole system and a whole company around that idea. And I think, you know, that could definitely be applied to just about anything you want to build. Well, when the John Master Lee book on the Lean Startup for Video Games comes out, we'll have you back on the show, all right? (laughs) (laughs) Now, I'll just do enough podcasts where people could just like transcribe it. And I think that'll be uh, that'll do it for me. There you go. That can be the book. That's fine. Um, all right, so uh, tell me what happened to Wicked Loot and Hawaii. So, uh, you know, I'll put this in a way that, you know, doesn't make it sound like, you know, I'm blaming my wife, but she did quite and quite grow on her. Um, so even though I loved it out there, um, she had eyelid fever, which I guess is a real thing, and uh, we had to move back to, to the mainland. So... The, the company um, is still in existence, but ultimately we really kind of wound everything down without being able to you know, maintain the studio there. Um, you know, the, the Hawaiian government had invested in it as well. So ultimately, for them, it was really important to really build up the Hawaiian tech ecosystem. And knowing that I couldn't do that, you know, I came back to the U.S. to work on some other stuff. So, um, you know, since then, work at companies like Loot Crate and... You know, my current company, If We, uh, which actually I just wrapped up with as well. So um, I'm kind of on the hunt now for the next interesting thing. Okay. So you you said you just uh, wrapped up with, um, is it the Meat Group? Is that right? Yeah. Meat Group was, um, which, you know, isn't like meat, like, say, steaks or anything like that, but it's like how to meet people. <laughs> um, it is... Um, it acquired the company that I joined called If We, and If We had a number of different games, which I, I headed up, and um, I had only been there for, I haven't been there for a year, so I didn't think the acquisition would happen that fast, but they got acquired, and so, you know, it, which is fantastic, this would be like the third company I've joined that got acquired, but uh it's also a little disruptive because uh, at the same time, I just moved, literally just moved back to the Bay Area. And I'm going, all right, what do I do now? Because uh, I'm literally, they just finished the consolidation. My team was dissolved because they're not going to go and, and double down on games. And I'm sitting here going like, well, what is the next cool thing I want to work on? And uh, sitting here in my 
make-believe underwear. I'm wearing jeans just so that I don't sit any off any sort of <laughs> raw visual imagery. And my cup of tea and talking to you and, you know, having fun trying to think of the next thing. Sure. Well, I appreciate you taking the time to uh, drink your tea with me and uh, give me the inside look, the behind-the-scenes look at John Master Lee's career. No problem. That was the longest set of interview questions around my career. <laughs> well, and what's great is, you know, you've already given a lot of really solid advice. We went on a couple of sidestepping tangents and discussed, you know, business and location and, you know, shipping a game early and the lean startup. I mean, we talked about a lot of stuff. So I really appreciate you taking the time to walk me through, you know, your story. But what do you think is next for you? Do you have an idea of what you want to do in the future? What do the next couple of years look like? That's an interesting question. Um, you know, I, I think part of what I want to work on is needs to be balanced now with, I think, some lifestyle choices that I want to to, um, to work on. And so for me, one of the, actually, one of the things that uh, my wife has really opened my eyes to is um, – uh, taking care of kids, uh, not just like even having our own kids, but actually adopting and foster caring kids. So, you know, she works with children um, and you you start to realize like how, you know, so many children are abandoned in the system and just never getting a fair advantage. It, it's something that has become, you know, I'm deeply become deeply passionate about. And so that's one thing that I realized that in order for me to do that, I'm trying to figure out how to balance and then since when it has been a almost like a life commitment towards one type of mode, which is all in in the gaming industry. And I don't think it's necessary because it's more like I have to do it because like, you know, my startup's going to run out of money. and It's going to die. It's just that, you know, I think that I can, you know, swim and, you know, like an Olympic swimmer when the reality is those days are long gone. And uh, <laughs> I, I look back at the last couple of years and, uh and how like how often I gotten sick, um, how often I pulled a muscle and I just you know and I'm like hobbled for like weeks. I ended up also getting um, what's that um, shingles? So oh, you know wow. shingles is like adult version of chickenpox, which is very rare to get unless you're like you know a decrepit ninety year old, right? It's like an old people <laughs> disease. And so the doctor said, well, you know, if you get it at your age, you know, stress is oftentimes a big indicator. And I'm like. I don't feel stressed. Like I thrive in this, but you know, whether or not you feel stressed, which is a mental sort of like conditioning versus whether your body can handle it. There's like two different things. So I think there's gotta be something that I want to invest in regarding like how it's like the method of making games. that I want to figure out how to invest in, which is why I'm so fascinated with like the lean startup approach and how to balance thinking about stuff and how to work with people in a way that sets a healthy tone for my team. So that they're building stuff that is, for me, rather than exploratory, because I kind of moved from a lot of different companies and different titles, because I, I love during that creative process, to building something that is probably longer term driven, right? Things that you can work on for the next five plus years, which is you know a lifetime in gaming development time. Right. This has been an awesome episode, and we've come to the end of it, sadly, but at the end of every episode, I do ask my guests to share one final piece of advice, something that has really been resonating with you lately or has been true for you. Now, I know you've already shared a lot of stuff and, you know, advice through the um, lean startup methodology that you've mentioned um, and just a, a plethora of insight on other things. But uh, do you have anything else to send people home with today? Yeah, you know, I think, um, you know, piggybacking of all the things that I said, 
there's really kind of like two paths you can go ultimately the day and in both of them you really have to double down one is if you don't know what you want to do do everything literally learn every aspect of this industry because it will become invaluable for either unlocking that thing that prevented you from seeing you know your next passion project if you will to honestly being better at running a business which is quite frankly what a game development is all about um, but once you do become engrossed in a particular project that's when you really got to like figure out every aspect of what makes games work right it's that combination of technology that combination of great design and business and because it's so much to do you know something like the lean startup approach which is get into the heart of what you think works gives you focus so you don't burn out and you know i hear two sides of those things all the time which is I really want to commit to something, but I don't know what. And I'm like, don't even stress yourself out about it. And the other half is they commit to it and they burn out and they can't deliver. And at the end of the day, you have to make something. Someone has to enjoy it. It's how you level up. It's what, you know, those milestones, ultimately, even while I gloss over them, are important because it shows that you gave something to somebody and they cared about it. That's excellent. John Master Lee, uh, this has been an excellent conversation. If people have really enjoyed it, they've enjoyed what you've had to say, um, and they want to follow you know, you and your work and, and wherever you end up next, uh, how do they find you out on those interwebs? That's a good question. You know, I started up like a YouTube channel at some point, and I'm on Twitter every now and then, and they hit me up on LinkedIn. Maybe I just need to update my own website, which is woefully updated just to kind of track more of these experiences. Um, I don't know. Just Google John Masterly, I guess, is the easiest answer. <laughs> sure. It's a fairly uh, unique name to use, so I think it'll be fairly easy to find you. You might get John Lee Hooker, who is a, fa- a fantastic jazz musician, but uh, other than that, there aren't too many other John Masterlys. <laughs> but not you, right? You're not a fantastic jazz musician? Oh, hell no. <laughs> yeah, music was never my strong suit. I probably went through like seven instruments, all realizing I sucked at all of them, quite frankly. But you were following your own advice. Try a little bit of everything, right? I did, yeah. I was like, I, you know, I, trumpet sucked because I had braces. Like, so, you know, you get blisters in your mouth everywhere. And I couldn't play drums because I couldn't coordinate hands and feet. Literally went through everything to prove like, all right. Thank I you for joining us this week. <laughs> Again, if you have thoughts, questions, or ideas you'd like to share, you can email me at logan at blackshowmedia.com. Or reach out on Twitter at Logan A. Schultz. That's L-O-G-A-N-A-S-C-H-U-L-T-Z. This podcast is presented by Blackshell Media, a publishing and marketing firm dedicated to helping independent video game developers reach massive audiences, publish financially successful titles, and turn game development into a career. It's the company's mission to help game developers get more of what they want out of a rewarding opportunity in the game industry more fans, and sustainable revenue to keep them moving forward. Blackshell Media also has an educational branch to their company, where they offer free articles and resources for aspiring and growing developers, which is why we get to bring this show to you every single week. You can find Blackshell Media on the web at blackshellmedia.com and on Twitter at blackshellmedia. This show is on iTunes, Google Play, and other podcast services across the web, as well as the Blackshell Media blog. If you enjoy what we're doing here and want us to keep doing it, or if you have things you'd like us to change, please go to your favorite podcast provider and leave us a review so that we can keep sharing these episodes each week with you. Special thanks this week goes out to Raghav Mather, Daniel Doan, 
and Raquel Hayner, as well as Benjamin Tiso over at bensound.com for the use of his song, Going Higher. I'm Logan Schultz, and you've been listening to Indie Insider. We'll see you next week.